Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Boom, we are back. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Jeff Gannon, Focus Compounding. How's it going? <laughs> That's me, yep. I, I introduced you. <laughs> as all right, you can introduce me. It's fine. Good, good. I hope everyone is doing well out there. Happy Thursday. Um, before we jump into it, we are going to be talking about Berkshire today. If you... I'm sure everyone, you think everyone knows that the Berkshire meeting went on recently? Probably everyone listening to this podcast yes. knows, yeah. Yes. I don't know everyone in the world knows. Yes. So uh, we are going to be talking about that. But before that, we are going to um, say, uh, join, follow us on YouTube. We're going to yes. be doing a bunch of YouTube videos at Focus mm-hmm. Compounding on YouTube. And that's the only plug we're going to do right now. <laughs> okay. Focus <laughs> Compounding with the ING. Yes, Focus Compounding. And, you know, people have reached out to us before saying that they would pay for a value investing course. Okay. We may do it for free on YouTube. Yeah, we're definitely not going to do anything where the people are paying for it. That's right. Yeah. So go to YouTube. We'll part. We don't know the format yet, but we're going to definitely explore that. And uh, be sure to subscribe there. Uh, so you'll get uh, notifications and everything when we um, upload videos. Yeah, and, and you're already up there with mental models, talking about mental models. Yep, yep. so twice people a week. can see where we record. I believe that's where you filmed it, right? That's right, right yeah. in here. Okay. On my throne, my, so they my can, desk. <laughs> they can see the recording studio, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I clean up my desk a little bit before I do it and make sure it looks good. But mm-hmm. yeah, so follow us at Focus Compounding on YouTube. Cool. So Berkshire Hathaway. Yes. We're going to be talking about that. They just had the annual meeting, which mm-hmm. we did not go to, which we did say we want to go to next year. Okay. Hopefully. It'll be fun to meet up with people, right? Yeah, we got a lot of emails from people. And just sit in and, and you know, obviously it's it's obviously it's 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 great watching from the comfort of my couch. Yeah, you can right? watch on Yahoo Finance. Yeah. yeah but it, it still would be tons of fun to go. Uh, it's so random, like Omaha. This is like thinking of like going to Omaha. Like it doesn't sound like the most random place to go for that. Yes, I've never done one. I don't know about you. No. No, no I definitely I haven't. Have never been to Nebraska at all. So he actually said in the meeting uh, about was it Nebraska Furniture Mart or no? Which company was it? They did. They sold a yearly's worth of revenue in the convention center on that one day than they oh. normally do, like the full year. Right? I, I forget know. which it's company it was. Nebraska Furniture Mart. No, but it's not. No, it's not Nebraska. <laughs> I've been I mean, to he Nebraska said the one Furniture Mart here. In, yeah, in, we're in, we're yeah. in Dallas, and he said that they'll do a billion in revenue out of that store alone, they, based on how much capital they put into it. They better. Yeah, and I think he actually said it was kind of a dud the first couple of years i know it didn't it didn't hit what no, he thought it, it would hit, hit. His goal for the first uh, year probably yeah. yeah yeah but anyway so um enjoyed the meeting did you enjoy it yeah it was good yeah. what did you think about it it's good like i i mean it's very similar to what we've seen before in terms of questions and things like that um i think there's some interesting things happening with berkshire and uh a lot of the like analyst questions are uh, more analysts than journalists but journalists and analyst questions are good um you know some of the questions from the actual shareholders aren't always that great. Yeah, um, they're. I mean, they're a little off topic for us talking about Berkshire, which is what we care most about, rather than his opinions on yeah. different things. Yeah. Did you? Now I only watched it till about twelve o'clock because okay. I had to do something. Um, I, I did not have anything to do. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> did they prepper him more on like what he's going to do with all that cash he has? Because I believe from when I was watching it, at least unless I was not paying well, attention. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess my interpretation of his answer about that was. Um, 
that if the stock was a lot cheaper, so he it was would just buy, buy a lot more. Stock. Yeah, 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 yeah. they buy back a lot more. I, I don't, you know, I, I think that's definitely the plan. Um, I think they think businesses are very expensive right now, especially buying entire businesses. Sure. And uh, if things you know dropped a lot in price, they would buy a lot of other things. And um, I think he thinks Berkshire isn't that cheap. But it's a little cheap. He's sure that it's a little cheap, basically. Yeah. That was my imp- uh, my impression of what he said, basically. Mm-hmm. What about, do you think Ted and Todd should answer more questions? No. Really? So I'm kind of surprised you, say, you think that. No, no, no. I just don't think it's the venue for it. If they want to do something where they talk about them or something, well, I think there's several reasons why not. And as someone who does manage accounts, I can tell you uh, one of them relates that way. Um, I wouldn't want to... It's bad for Berkshire's business to talk any more in detail about stocks they own. Mm-hmm. You know, Buffett buys some things people everybody knows about, and he's holding it for a long time. That's fine, but it's a definite competitive disadvantage for people to know what you own. Now they have to file things that tell people what they own, sure. but you don't want to keep sort of talking. You don't want to talk up stocks that you might want to buy more of in the future. That's true even for Berkshire with Apple. They would have bought a lot more Apple if it hadn't gone up, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't help keeping Apple stock from going up to know that Berkshire owns it. Sure. So if they could have hidden that fact longer, that might have helped. That might have contributed to to not having it rise as much. Um, we focus on overlooked stocks. I definitely would prefer that they stay overlooked whenever there's any chance we'll continue to buy more of them. Um, and sometimes we, I mean, we've bought some and then the price has gone up a little bit and we didn't get, we didn't end up not buying everything I wanted. Yeah, sure. That happens all the time with Buffett, I'm sure. And I'm sure it would also uh, happen with the other managers there. So I don't think you want to talk about, you know, um, I don't want you know talk if they ask you you know so what's the mode of this company or that company, and you talk about it. That's only going to encourage more value investors to think about that stock that way. You know, mm-hmm. probably Buffett's buying of Apple has encouraged some value people to kind of look into Apple and think about it from a moat perspective. You know, mm-hmm. what did you think about them buying Amazon? Which obviously it wasn't Warren. Yeah, it wasn't Warren. I have no idea. I mean, I just don't know. Um, yeah. We don't. I, at this point, we don't know like how much they bought or what was going on there. And um, you know, I don't. It's a question of valuation stuff. Mm-hmm. Ever, you know, it, I've talked a little bit about Amazon before. I did some write-up thing. People ask me questions about. It. I guess the only interesting thing I have to say about Amazon compared to what other people say is um, some people I realized were surprised when I said that Amazon will one day be much much bigger than Facebook or Google. Mm-hmm. Um, like no doubt, m- much much bigger. That Facebook and Google have much more limited prospects for um, growth, just in terms of size, than Amazon. And that Amazon could become a you know very very giant company. It's it's a big company and it's a giant company by market cap. Sure. Um, but I was just making the point that in terms of what revenues and profits and stuff it'll have, will eventually be much greater than anything that Google or Facebook could have just because advertising is such a small part of the overall economy compared to what Amazon's in. Mm-hmm. And basically Google and Facebook get all of their um, profits from, from advertising. And that's a couple percent of the entire uh, GDP. Mm-hmm. That's it. And it's not going to get bigger than that. So, so anyway, just people were surprised by that. So it's possible that um, to, I mean, Amazon can be more of a growth stock than those companies. That's sure. the one thing that I'll say. And I point out because when I, a lot of people talk to me about that by email and stuff, I guess they put the FANG stocks uh, all together that way in terms of their future growth prospects, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's true. Uh, whether Amazon will be as good a business as some other things, I don't know. But it can certainly be a lot bigger than uh, those other companies. What do you think about Jeff Bezos? Uh, well, he's an excellent CEO. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they think pretty highly of him. Yeah. I, we were asked some question one time about CEOs, and, and Bezos definitely would. Yeah. Be, for a big company, 
uh, like one of the best known companies. Mm-hmm. He would be the one that I would say is the best CEO. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His letters, if I'm sure everyone's read them, that's listening. But mm-hmm. if you haven't, his shareholder letters are, are really good. I really enjoy yeah. reading them. Mm-hmm. What did you think about, um, um, like, were there any particular questions that stood out to you that people asked? Uh, yeah. So, well, the, the question that stood out the most to me was a question about, um, I believe it was the analyst asking the question about a uh, progressive and Geico and competition between them and stuff like that. That one I thought was really impressive. And that was uh, answered not by Charlie and Warren, yeah. but by Ajit, Ajit Jain, the head of the insurance uh, business overall. And uh, I had written up a report on progressive. So I definitely looked into that company. And uh, Geico has lower expenses than Progressive, and Progressive is a better underwriter than Geico. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason for Progressive doing the thing he was talking about, the renter's insurance thing, is to uh, rent homeowners and renters, is to um, increase retention rates. Geico has much better retention rates than Progressive. A uh, big difference in the economics is that Progressive covers more single people, more renters, things like that, younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting, and I think you know that's a one that provides a lot more detail than than Buffett has given. Um, in comparing those two companies. They're rarely compared that clearly. And what he said, what, what Ajit Jain said, is um, is completely how I looked at the two companies and the conclusion that I came to based on scuttlebutt and stuff about the two uh, companies. So. If you had to guess, what would you think Berkshire does over the next 10 years? In terms of returns? Yeah. Hmm. That's hard to say. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, it's somewhat undervalued compared to the S&P 500 it's undervalued Mm -hmm. Uh, investors are putting a higher multiples of things on the S&P 500 than they are on Berkshire actually I was just talking with um, Quan who used to write uh, the senior diligence reports with me for several years and he was interested in Berkshire and he put together a spreadsheet that he shared with me looking at Berkshire and you know how uh, Warren talks about how he and Charlie might come to a 10% 10% this way, 10% that way, sort yeah, of yeah, different yeah. opinion on intrinsic value. But same thing with, with me and Quan talking about it. Um, we were probably within 10% or something on terms of how we looked at what Berkshire's worth. And it's worth more than it's trading for. Mm-hmm. And the S&P 500 is worth less than it's trading for. So, yeah, it's cheaper than the S&P 500. Whether it can be as good is an interesting question. The difficulty is retaining the earnings. So if they could just use all of it on buybacks or something or all of it on dividends – I bet that they could outpace the S&P 500 over 10 years. But the amount of earnings they have to retain is very, very difficult. But they've been retaining earnings for decades and decades. It's just as a rule, high asset growth, having to retain a lot of earnings is very negatively um, – there's a very negative relationship with future returns. And they would say that too. The more money we retain, the harder it is to put that to work. If something happens where they can make a $100 billion deal or something, then that changes things. But they're sitting on a lot of cash, and that cash is building all the time, and that's the difficulty of it. Sure. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, no, I, w- I actually I wanted to make a point. I was um, talked about um, in the Q&A that we did that mm-hmm. I've, I've been going through the, the Buffett archives. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is – well, first off, what was interesting, I was actually listening to it, and then I heard a guy say, uh, Mr. Buffett, this is Bill Ackman, which was uh-huh. in 94, yeah. or 1994, and he asked about Wells Fargo and mm-hmm. why he thought it was a good company. Um, what did you think about Wells Fargo? And because uh, people asked him about Wells Fargo, and Charlie was a lot more. Uh, the Wall Street Journal they did a an interview with him, and he was a lot more. It's called like Charlie Munger unplugged, and mm-hmm. uh, they asked about Wells Fargo. But what did you think about um, 
it sounded like they didn't think what Wells Fargo did was as immoral as a bunch of people think it was. Well, what Wells Fargo did, uh, well, did it, you get that impression? I mean, it's it sounded yeah, like they no, thought no, that. I, yeah. Well, I agree with them if what you mean. But here's the thing that's complicated. So we're referring to Wells Fargo as a thing. Yeah. Um, what Wells Fargo as a company did was certainly immoral and unethical and all that. But yeah, you have yeah. to remember who did it. And why they did it. Sure. So people opened up fake accounts and things like that um, at a low level because their incentives were to do exactly that. Um, And that happens in all sorts of companies all the time where their incentives are higher to have customers buy one sort of thing than another. And they'll sell an inferior product to customers if they have, you know, if they get 50% of commission on one and 40% on the other. Yeah. And uh, and they'll do even more than that when their job depends on they'll be fired if they don't do a good enough job. And I can think of lots of examples of incentives in companies where, like, a company says, okay, we want to shift to being whatever thing they pick um, for, you know. Um, I think Charlie actually talks about Xerox. They had a – they came out with, like, a new printer scanner something mm-hmm. along those lines, and they couldn't understand why this new – printer wasn't mm-hmm. selling as well as like this the old model until they reviewed the comp structure and yeah. people on the old one uh were making way more on commissions yeah and i know of a case where like a, co- a company was having problems with um their call center stuff and so they decided um we need to take these calls faster and stuff and so there were there'd be negative consequences for employees if they uh let a call go for a certain number of seconds a few seconds without uh, being picked up and stuff but what that resulted in without other changes is quickly just taking calls telling people that they have to be on hold and stuff putting them on hold forever yeah, sure. and then the next quarterly meeting they decide okay we got to change the incentive so that we don't put people on hold that long and you know each of those things and what happened at, at wells was that the incentives were the company had always been obsessed with cross-selling and things like that so the incentives were to make sure that customers had as many accounts as possible um and so that was a dumb incentive structure and then once you become aware of that is the problem um, and I think they said that sometimes and I don't think people appreciate that enough what Buff and Munger were saying about that part of it. Companies will mess things up all the time, especially at lower levels that you don't realize because of something you did, your incentives and things like that. And they don't um, deal with it fast enough. And that happens a lot of times. Sure. And they need to very seriously deal with that uh, fact. And they didn't. And to me, that's the really big problem. And you see that at so many companies that they didn't deal with this issue um, and that was lower down in the company. And, uh, yeah, that's the really big problem to me about it uh, in terms of the, you know, so they put t- together incentives that were bad, um, but that happens lots of places. But what they didn't do is really root out the problem right away, and that's very important. Uh, and then because they're, you know, too big to fail bank and all that, there's political things and stuff that sure. come out of that PR stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. What did you think about? Um, did they talk about J.P. Morgan at all in Amazon and them partnering? partnering oh yeah, yeah together the, health, around the healthcare that? thing. Yeah. yeah, I have. I mean, I have no uh, views on that one. That's something that I really don't even understand what they're doing. You yeah, know, I know what they're saying that they're going to try to do and stuff, and it makes sense. It makes sense to the three people that are involved with it. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, but so the, the question, so like one question that people had to me in emails and things were like, why do we think that Buffett was talking about things differently? For instance, the big one that they had from the annual letter was why drop the book value, thing, yeah, which sure. is the biggest change. And it's all related to, to buybacks that way. Mm-hmm. So, and I think Charlie, um, said, where are his exact words? Um, they're going to be a lot there. He would expect them to be a lot more liberal in the future about buybacks. Yeah, like that. Yeah, it was yeah. something close to that. And, um, and I would expect that. I mean, we'll see what happens. But I think the really big change, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast, I think, is that the reason for dropping 
um, book value and stuff is that they intend to buy back stock even at prices significantly above book value. You know, enough we talked about book that value before, yeah. that it would really matter. Yeah. And so in terms of Berkshire's future, I think the really big thing is how they how they do that if they buy back stock and stuff. Uh, the thing that's really dumb that I've heard a lot of people talk about, not at the meeting, but just in general, um, in articles and things, is the idea of breaking up Berkshire. Mm-hmm. And that makes no sense. So I should like um, explain that when I say Berkshire's undervalued and stuff, here's the way it works. If you look at some of the parts of what Berkshire would trade at, if you split up all the parts, tomorrow, if you split it all up, it would trade higher than it is today. But 10 years from now, Berkshire would be worse off if it had been split up and those 10 part, all those parts had been allowed to grow for 10 years. They would be, end up in a worse place than Berkshire today um, being held together for those 10 years. Why is that? Well, it's because Berkshire is better able to allocate capital. And it's so much better to allocate capital that people don't realize the dangers that it has. Uh, take Progressive, for instance. So um, Progressive is a great underwriter in all ways is you know, very comparable to Geico and better than some, it's a little bit better than even some parts of Berkshire's own insurance stuff. It's a really good company. Um, it's why, a, why are they a good underwriter? Like, how do you define that? Well, they have more data and they know better how to use it than anyone else. They move very quickly on certain things. They have much more experience in writing some of the riskiest things. I mean, when we did some scuttlebutt on it, the thing that really excited their independent, so they, they aren't just um, a direct business. Geico's a 100% direct business. Progressive is direct and also goes through agents, uh, not their own agents, but independent agents. But um, what those agents loved about it is no matter how bad the um, risk that came in was, you know, they would say this person is a, you know, uh, for the example that they gave is alcoholic uh, motorcycle. So a person who's riding a motorcycle and is alcoholic, both of those things are rough for insurance companies to insure when someone has a bunch of alcohol-related things and a motorcycle instead of car are things that sometimes are difficult to underwrite and stuff. Um, they were excited, these insurance agents, that they could always make a sale because Progressive would always give them a quote and the the client, the potential client, always knew what pro, that had heard the Progressive name. So they were like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So Geico's history is they started in preferred insurance. So they started with the lowest risk. Progressive's history really is they start with the highest risks. And over time, they've grown to be more similar to each other, but but probably in part because of the focus on high-risk stuff early on for Progressive and some things that that did for the culture and stuff, that they're better at that, and I would say that's true. Um, but anyway, uh, but, but what they're not good at is investing. So many years ago, Progressive had some bad experiences in investing, and the company basically said, we're not doing it. And so they invest in very, very low-risk, very, very short-term type securities, and um, as a result, they're just the return on equity with a, with a float with a float. Yeah. yeah, but the return on equity is just lower than it would be if if Berkshire owned Progressive. Berkshire would get more value at Progressive than Progressive does as an independent company. Got it. So it's the ability to use that, and that is true at Berkshire in example after example of of companies. So like a big one is they're able to take everything. I mean, this is a great example of it. Is in their um, utility business. And they made this point at the annual meeting, but I don't think people appreciate it. They don't pay dividends from the utility business to Berkshire. Every utility company, every publicly traded utility company takes dividends and pays it out to shareholders instead of reinvesting it all. In fact, it's something that they do all the time, and it really determines things about whether capital spending can be and stuff. They're, They're terribly afraid if they've been paying dividends for 40 or 50 years in a row that you can't ever lower the dividend. You can't do all these other things. And so they don't have the same ability to make as high 
to, to make to take every decision that would give them a higher return on capital than another uh, utility company. Whereas inside Berkshire, no one wants dividends from uh, their utility business, and so it can do those sorts of things. And there's case after case of that. He talked uh, Buffett talked about C's, which is a great example. If C's Candy was a um, independent business, it would try everything to grow. It would acquire things. It would do all this other weird stuff to try to grow, and it would just get low returns on capital. Sure. Where instead, he allows it to have very high returns on capital, and then for the most part, takes the money from C's and invests in other stuff. He took it and you know goes and buys a newspaper with it or something. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. how it worked. So that ability, even if you don't have Buffett there, is a huge advantage. So many companies can start off with a moat with high returns on capital and stuff, but they can't keep growing, but they try, and they get lower and lower returns on capital. Uh, worst and worst incremental returns throughout their whole history. And Berkshire's just this ability to shift capital to where it's at its best use that way. And, you know, presumably it's through things like charging them for capital and stuff, costs for it inside the company. So we don't have lots of details on all that. But what happens is that, you know, if a company needs um, to reinvest in the business and stuff, if it isn't going to hit a certain threshold, it's not in the, in terms of the, manager's compensation and things like that we would expect based on some stuff Buffett has said that um, investing at like single digit type rates of return would hurt their compensation basically so it would be an advantage to them to send more money to corporate um, than it would be to reinvest constantly at like you know an eight percent return whereas at many public companies reinvesting everything in eight percent return might actually increase your compensation depending on how you're compensated some use ROE and stuff like that but a lot use growth and earnings and stuff do you think we would know who Warren Buffett is if he, I guess, stayed in the partnership or like the fund type structure? Do you think he would have been as wealthy as he was or oh, as he is? He would be wealthier. You think so? Yeah. But, well, we, for the but fees, he'd be yeah. less well known. You think so? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. He'd be wealthier and less well known. Uh huh. So I don't know why he didn't do it. But no, I mean, um, it was just a sort of an accident that way. But yeah, by being a public company, he's better known that way. Because uh-huh. people look at it as a stock and how impressive the returns are and stuff. Sure. Whereas they don't for private type companies that way. I mean, that's true just public versus private for a, a lot of things. Yeah. There, there's lots of examples where I can think of someone being pretty rich as a private company and it's not well known. Um, but yeah, no, he would probably be even richer because there are certain disadvantages, less so now than there were before, but especially in the, the, tax the early decades. Yeah, yeah, there were big disadvantages in the early decades for um, the corporate structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And certainly if he had done it without buying Berkshire uh, Hathaway, the, the textile mills, then that would benefit them for the first 20 years or so because that was a drag on performance definitely mm-hmm. for that period. So yeah, he'd be richer if it wasn't for that. And of course, he'd be richer if he was taking fees on it. He'd sure. a lot richer, so. Yeah. Interesting. I'm surprised even, I mean, I guess the, um, like the public way that the way the taxes are, it's better now, but I didn't, I didn't realize probably back in the day it was different. Yeah. Well, the taxes were a lot higher. So for certain, I mean, it gets complicated to do it because they always had an insurance business. They once had a bank thing, so that changes some stuff, but in gen, so some of the stuff they owned were inside entities where it'd be a little different, but yeah, in terms of like stuff for intercompany, um, dividends for companies that they own some of, but not all of and stuff. Yeah. The, the dividends rate stuff would have been much worse for them. Some capital gains stuff would have been much worse. Um, they would have paid some pretty high taxes on some of that stuff and did. In the early days, when they sold some things after not holding it for that long and stuff, there they were pretty high taxes mm-hmm. um, for a corporation that they wouldn't have had in different structures. Yeah, cool. No, some people talk about it as like if that's a positive, the ability to move what the is what a positive being in a corporate structure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's negative from tax perspective. It's worse. I don't know why people ask that question all the time because you can calculate it easily. It's worse. Yeah. They have it's harder for them than it is an index fund. They have to do better than the index fund to get the same result. 
Now they have float and things like that. So the advantages in terms of financing the company with a insurance business is an advantage, but an insurance company that just owned the S and P 500 would have the same advantage. You know what I mean? Monish was talking about, he, I think, I don't know if he bought an insurance company. Are you familiar with this or no? No, not at all. I don't know if he started an insurance company or bought an insurance company. And he was saying like the float, the way that you invest the float, there's like a bunch of rules behind that. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. So insurance companies are regulated and they're regulated in a couple of different ways, but they're regulated mostly at the state level. Yeah. 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 They're regulated mostly at the state level. And, um, uh, so, so that's the the biggest thing there. They're also not regulated, but they also have basically insurance companies also rely on a rating from a, a rating company. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so think yeah. Moody's or Fitch, but it's it's not you know S and P Moody's or Fitch, but it's not one of those. But it, it gives them a financial strength rating, which is very important to how other insurers look at you and give you business and things like that. So um, you have both of those going for you. You have an actual regulator, and then you also have that you basically need to have a high enough score. Um, uh, so it's sort of like having a bond rating. Yeah, because he was both. talking about, I think, how it would have been challenging for him to invest in like four or five different stocks or something like mm-hmm. that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's a that's an issue that they um, have. But, you know, there are, yes. But, I mean, Berkshire is much more aggressive, as far as I can tell, in insurance stuff, the insurance assets they have. And even they seem to be, as best I can tell, in pension stuff, and more aggressive in being more in stocks than others would be. And things like that. I mean, even comparing to Progressive, Progressive, like I said, owns like basically short-term bonds, whereas Geico, as you know from when Lou Simpson was uh, running the portfolio and stuff, owned a bunch of stocks. Mm-hmm. So it gets you a very different result over time. Sure. Um, but there are huge risks with it because Progressive being on its own has the risk that what if there was a bad investment year in the same year there's a bad underwriting year. Progressive has huge underwriting leverage. And so they had one year almost 20 years ago or something that was really bad from an underwriting perspective. If that coincides at the same time as a huge stock drop, your capital, you know, you have some serious issues. So I can see why they would want to focus on underwriting and not, you know, be involved in that. But Berkshire is diversified. They don't have that concern. Cool. Any other thoughts on the, on the Berkshire meeting? Uh, no, it was good. And you want to uh, go to it next year? Well, you want to go to it? That would be fun, right? <laughs> well, we'll see. It would be fun. We got to yeah. do it at least once, right? I guess that's so, what yeah. that's what they say. That's, that's what they say. You yeah, have to so, go to Omaha once. Yeah, so you heard it here first. So next year we're gonna get a bunch of emails <laughs> and we're like, actually, we're not going. No, we want we definitely want to go to it. So um, I think that would be a lot of fun. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. If you do enjoy the podcast, feel free to give us a rating and review on iTunes on the podcast app. That will help us out a lot. And if you want to join Focus Compounding, use the podcast promo code which is podcast and they'll take some money off of the subscription price as long as you do stay a member if you want to see andrew go to youtube and type in focus compounding go to youtube type in that focus compounding and (laughs) subscribe and subscribe there we go we'll see everybody next podcast take care hey this is jeff gannon and that was the focus compounding podcast the podcast where andrew and i talk general investing concepts if you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.